Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend. Coming up, an art critic shines light on the women who painted self-portraits against all odds over the course of Western art history. They weren't allowed to paint naked models. They weren't allowed to go to art school. So, you know, if they had a mirror and a palette, they could, you know, use themselves as a subject. Plus, author and TV writer Zoe Whittall tells us about her new book, The Spectacular, and a whole lot more. Like, I just sort of only came out because a girl kissed me once and I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, like, I never would have come up with it on my own. But first, it's our panel on The Week That Was. With us this week, we have Omar Holman and William Evans. They're the minds behind Black Nerd Problems, a delightfully nerdy pop culture website. There's a podcast, too, and they just wrote a collection of essays called Black Nerd Problems. Omar, William, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for coming on. So this week, Captain Kirk finally went to literal space at age 90. I'm so filled with emotion about what just happened. I, I just... Extraordinary. The almighty Dr. Fauci decreed that kids can trick or treat and enjoy it. And the highly anticipated third season of Succession premieres this weekend on HBO. We'll fucking beast them. We'll go full fucking beast. But we're not going to talk about any of those things. I actually think we should start this week with the extremely scintillating topic of inflation. This week, we found out (laughs) consumer prices in September were on average 5.4% higher than September of last year. That is the highest rate since 2008. The Social Security Administration announced it's trying to take the edge off with a higher payout next year for cost of living adjustments. Turns out a lot of economists are saying this is partly because of supply chain issues, which is a phrase we've been hearing more and more. But I don't know, like, how much are you managing to give a shit about this, given everything else that's going on in the world, you know? (laughs) I literally, maybe two weeks ago, I finally broke down, quote unquote, because I was going to upgrade my computer. The last couple computers I've had, I've built them. And this time I went and just got a custom computer and bought it outright because, you know, actual materials are so sparse. And so, you know, you have a graphics card that might normally cost like $200 that's going for like $400, $450. Um, and, and it goes exponentially up from there. And, you know, with the book coming out, this is kind of crazy. We were told is like, hey, push your fans to buy your book early because there's going to be shortages come the holiday season. Yeah. And like book supply chains have already been talking about this. Like, Hey, like we we've been telling you for months it's going to be short. Well, I mean, you throw a pandemic in there and like, of course things are going to get weird, you know? Absolutely. What do you think, Omar? Oh, I have some friends actually visiting and I think, uh, you don't really know supply chain until like you need it. And uh, I had some, he asked me if he need, uh, had any dumbbells. So I gave him two dumbbells and he's like, you know, there's a shortage of these. I'm like, there's a shortage of dumbbells. And he's like, yeah, I mean, the pandemic mm-hmm. happened, whatever. You don't have the workers to, um, to create them more. So like 
there was a dude that went to a store down where he lives in uh, Georgia and like he wanted 45 weighted plates. And he's like, guess what the price was. I'm like, oh, it's going to be like 300. It was like 900 for two. And I'm like, I'm like, nah, I'm like, nah, first, nah, nah, what? What? He's like, he's like yeah, like, this is what happens. <laughs> so I want to check in with you two about uh, Dave Chappelle because oh, yeah. he has a new special out on Netflix. It's called The Closer. Um, I think it's fair to say he's always been a comedian whose goal was to kind of like, you know, test people's limits. But this time... It got real tricky. I mean, in this special, Chappelle is making fun of the movement to protect LGBTQ rights. He proclaims he identifies as a trans-exclusionary radical feminist or TERF. He stands up for J.K. Rowling and DeBaby. Um, I'll stop there. There's definitely more, though. I'm. Where are y'all in terms of how you feel about this? I mean, are you Chappelle fans, Omar? I mean, it kind of used to be, but it's like <laughs> you live long enough to see your what is it? What's the line Harvey Dent said in uh, Batman? Either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mm. Mm-hmm. And we also have a friend, Nicole Homer, says you either die a hero, or become a villain, or you just retire. <laughs> um, listen, like, let's be real. When you got the money and you got the uh, notoriety, you can kind of like say what you want. You're not really going to be affected with it, mm. which is all right, fine. Like, but also like you take a whole stance on like cancel culture that being your whole angle and it's like he's a great storyteller yes and but it's like the story you're telling it's like a lot of contradictions within it as well and then if you're like you say you're not punching down on people because you respect them so how can you punch down on someone you respect nice wording nice wording however i don't know if it works like that yeah will have you seen it uh yeah i mean i've seen what i can watch of it there's some mm. really good reading on this. Saeed Jones had the article that came out oh, yeah. on GQ. Yes. Um, I think recently Roxanne Gay wrote in the Times about Dave Chappelle. We should be very clear. Like, Chappelle is still very talented at what he does, mm-hmm. right? I think we're just now realizing how narrow his perspective is. And probably always has been, right? Um, Chappelle has had this kind of like rebelling against the the machine kind of a thing. And this happens with so many super famous and wealthy people. They don't realize that they become part of the machine. Mm -hmm. So like he's still trying to do this. I'm just speaking for the, the, the the voices that, you know, aren't, aren't pushing through, but he doesn't realize his voice is a very corporate voice now. So, you know, like Saeed made a really good point in in his write-up, now I'm the sacrifice, but you were the one you were fighting for me at one time. Mm-hmm. And I think there was one point where it was like, yeah, Chappelle's saying this stuff. And like, this is like a uh, rust for black folks. And then as he climbed and got more famous and then the message starts getting scrutinized a little more, it's like, ah, well, it's black folks, but maybe not black queer folks. Okay. Actually it leaves mm-hmm. out trans folks altogether. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I, I, I think we just didn't realize how narrow his scope was for how he wants to challenge and push the limits. The other side of it is, and some people may or may not agree with this, it's just boring, man. You know, one of the reasons why I am not obsessive about succession, like like some other folks, um, (laughs) even though I think it's a really well-made show, is that like the problems of rich people bore me. Mm -hmm. And- And like, this is, a this is, I mean, we can act like this is a societal problem, but this is like a rich person problem, right? I just don't mm-hmm. care enough. Um, but I do care about what he says having real world consequences, despite whatever dude from Netflix said it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I think it's interesting too. I mean, you mentioned Netflix, like they're standing by pretty solidly. They say they're not going to take the special down. According to The Verge, trans employees are planning a walkout to protest, uh, 
I don't know, Omar, like, do you think Netflix should be doing more? Like, what do you think is the role in this situation of a distribution company to make the call if, you know, Chappelle is going to say stuff that is like, you know, pretty objectively super offensive to a lot of people? <sighs> they stood by him before when he wanted them to not uh, air his Chappelle show stuff. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if really look at it. Oh, we're standing by his art and everything as well. Like, OK, but also standing by him making your money, too. Is it yeah. not like does it not always come back down to that? But I mean, also, you can like, all right, we can stand by him on this side and also have like all these queer shows that are helping on this side. So like, to me, it always feels like you try to play both sides. And that's what a corporation does. That's kind of like what they always mm-hmm. do, is it not? You have, you have people that work for Netflix where their mission is to bring more inclusive content and have more well-rounded conversations around marginalized folks. But that's not Netflix's mission. <laughs> Netflix's <laughs> mission is to make money. Sure. Mm-hmm. And Dave Chappelle is going to make money um, because people are going to watch his special because he's probably the most well-known comedian in the world. So I guess to ask if Netflix is going to do something about his content would be to ask them to fundamentally change what their mission is. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate because anyone that liked anything comedic wise or sketch comedy or anything, like, of course you were a Chappelle fan. He's a freaking genius. Um, and so it's disappointing to see where this is going, but also <laughs> Chappelle fans are going to start dividing, right? In terms of like, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, I used to be a Chappelle fan or I still ride for Chappelle. Um, and he's perfectly fine with that. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned Saeed Jones in the article he wrote for GQ. I mean, he's been posting on Instagram of like all the DMs he's been getting from people telling him he's a horrible person for not supporting Chappelle anymore. You know, I mean, it's real. Mm-hmm. Phantom sucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should have you back for a whole conversation about that. Before I let you go, though, I wanted to check in with you all about this Lego thing because I think it's super interesting. On Monday, which also happened to be the United Nations Day of the Girl, Lego announced that they plan to fully eliminate gender stereotypes from their toys and marketing. Uh, Lego decided to make the change after conducting a study that found that 76% of parents said they would encourage boys to play with Legos compared to 24% who would do the same for girls. The Danish company is the biggest toy maker in the world. So this isn't not a big deal. Uh, How big of an impact do you think this could have? Omar, what do you think? I mean, I guess this is a way of uh, (laughs) is inclusion, but we're also making money off it as well. (laughs) Speaking of money. But I think that's dope because in 2021, where I was like, girls play with dolls, boys play with active figures. Man, they are both the same thing, fam. So I think like, let's eliminate that line. And it's dope to have inclusion that way. Uh, they have also a way of like making it less painful when you step on them. I'd be all for that. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to have Legos anymore. My mom stepped on my Ghostbusters one. She's like, nah, these are done. These are done because you know how to act with them. You out here leaving them alone. I mean, that's fair. Nah, that's super fair. <laughs> what do you think? Well, I mean, part of it is like, do brightly colored plastic toys really have to be like, you know, weren't they already fairly gender neutral? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I look at this as Lego makes this move and I'm like, good for you i think um but i'm also like i'm I'm not sure it's a lego problem uh <laughs> it, it, because where i guess i would challenge lego is like what exactly does it mean what exactly did he plan to do to combat this i have a daughter mm. she's about to turn 10 years old so it kind of gives you the age range is she a lego kid 
Yes. Yeah. I mean, like if we're, if we're walking through something and she sees something that's really cool Lego, then then she wants at it. But like most of the Lego stuff we do is like licensed Lego stuff. And I think that's kind of where this is important to me, maybe. So like Harry Potter Legos or whatever, you're like Star Wars or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So like she might have something that's like, I don't know, My Little Pony Lego or something like that. Right. But she also has, you know, Black Panther. And so... I think if Lego is like, we're going to work more of these licensed brands that have maybe had a larger feminine woman girl audience, Mm -hmm. and we're going to make those more available, then that makes sense to me. I never want to let corporations off the hook, but I'm not sure how much of this Lego's fault. Um, (laughs) I guess this makes me think about how, let's say you get like an animated show and that show may not last because they didn't think that girls were going to buy enough toys of the show, right? right? And that was a very common theme for a lot of shows, a lot of properties. And so I, I feel like maybe there's some relationship there with Lego, but I, I, I don't know what it is, but I just don't necessarily think that like Lego been out here pushing toxic masculinity. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, um, <laughs> right? Building blocks, that's a different story. Yeah, right, though, right, right? Right. They're mad toxic. <laughs> So I say good on them, but I'm curious of like what the move is to like combat that. I like the idea of just like good on them question mark. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Omar, Will, thank you both so much. This was really fun to chat with you today. Thank you. It was fun for us too. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Picture a famous artist's self-portrait. Odds are, even if you are not an art critic, you have one in mind. Maybe it's Van Gogh with the bandage on his ear or Picasso during his blue period or Matisse or Rembrandt. Maybe you thought of Frida Kahlo or Georgia O'Keeffe. But the reality is, while women were certainly the subjects of plenty of paintings, there aren't many self-portraits of them, which means the few female self-portraits that exist are fascinating. Here to tell us about them is Jennifer Higgy. She's a novelist, screenwriter, art critic, and former editor of the contemporary arts magazine, Freeze. And she's the author of a new book called The Mirror and the Palette, Rebellion, Revolution, and Resilience, 500 Years of Women's Self-Portraits. Jennifer, welcome to Nerdette. Oh, hi, Greta. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So the book opens with a quote that kind of blew my mind. It's by Christine de Pizan. Am I saying that right? (laughs) You are right. Yeah. And she said anyone who wanted could cite plentiful examples of exceptional women in the world today. It's simply a matter of looking for them. And what's really crazy is that Christine was a medieval poet and feminist. She said that in 1405. That is like literally 700 years ago. Um, how did you come across that quote? And what did you think when you first saw it? Oh, my God, that quote absolutely blew me away. It's from her incredible sort of dream novel called um, Book of the City of the Ladies. You know, as you mentioned, she was a medieval poet. And she was, as far as we know, one of the first women, if not the first woman in, the, in Western letters to um, make a living from writing. Because mm-hmm. I think her husband left her or died and she was left supporting her mother and children. And so, you know, like so many women today, she went, OK, what, what can I do to you know, pay the bills? 
and she was a wonderful writer. And so she wrote this amazing book, which was sort of brilliantly um, creative around the idea of um, women creating a space for themselves in a in a city where they wouldn't be oppressed by men. Mm. And so she brings in artists and writers and healers and mystics and, you know, all manner of women to, to live in this city so that they can live peacefully without being um, oppressed by the patriarchy. Ugh, it's just amazing. And I, I mean, the deep irony that like that quote, you know, I mean, people say that now. Exactly. We're still saying it. <laughs> yeah, it's just a trip. So this book is all about self-portraits. And I don't know, I think it's so interesting because like we've we've all seen portraits of women, right? I mean, the Mona Lisa is like one of the most famous pieces of art that exists, mm -hmm. but that's not the same at all as a self-portrait, right? Yeah, it's a bit like um, the great um, activist group, the Guerrilla Girls, put up posters saying, do women have to be naked to get into the Met? Mm. You know, the idea that um, in historical collections, women are present, but they're usually uh, naked and seen as goddesses or, mm -hmm. you know, or as allegorical creatures. And so um, most historical museums only have a tiny, tiny percentage of their collection devoted to women artists. But the thing is, Women have always made art against right. great odds, you know, without any political agency. They're barred from academies and art schools. They're not allowed to be apprentices in the Renaissance. They, they're not allowed to work on scaffolds. But still, in every period, you know, since the Middle Ages, there are, you know, clear records of women working. I mean, obviously not as many as men because they had so much stacked against them. But, right. but they were there and they, they had great careers, many of them. Mm -hmm. I think, too, about like what an empowering element to a self-portrait there is. You know, it's that idea mm -hmm. that that a woman gets to paint herself as she sees herself instead of as she's seen instead of being objectified. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think often women were compelled to make self-portraits because they they were the only subject that was available to themselves. You know, they right. weren't allowed to paint naked models. They weren't allowed to go to art school. So, you know, if they had a mirror and a palette, they could, you know, mm -hmm. use themselves as a subject. I love that. Can we zoom out a little bit and just talk about the significance of the self-portrait in general in art history? Mm, absolutely. I mean, what's really fascinating about self-portraits is that they're very rare, really, until the modern period. Because most artists up until the modern period were working on commission. And so they were, you know, commissioned to do allegorical or historical subjects or a still life. Mm -hmm. And so the idea of painting yourself, I mean, who would you do that for? You know, if you do, does the patron want a picture of the artist? Not necessarily. And so the earliest self-portraits were quite um aggrandizing you've got Albrecht Dürer who does these amazing mm. self-portraits but he pictures himself as very Christ-like I mean you know <laughs> he, he he wasn't a modest man I would say you know and then you've got really great self-portraits of like psychological studies by yeah. um, Titian and Tintoretto and people but women really only started to make self-portraits um, because they're excluded and one of the most interesting stories I sort of came across when I was writing my book was that of a very small self-portrait painted in 1548 by a young artist called Katharina van Hemmersen in Antwerp. Mm -hmm. And it's a very small self-portrait. It's quite modest. She looks rather timid and she's painting a picture of the Virgin Mary. But what is really radical about this is this is the first self-portrait we know of in history by anyone of any gender um, where the artist is picturing themselves seated at the easel working. And to my mind, this is a really radical gesture that she's making. She's saying, I may be a woman, but I can work and I right. have creative agency. So, Ugh. 
Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. It's a really wonderful painting. As you as you looked at self-portraits by women throughout history, did you find common themes that that did sort of distinguish them from self-portraits by male artists? You know, I think one of the really important things that I sort of discovered was that, and I think most women would know this, is that no two women are the same, you know, <laughs> and, and, the, and the motivations for painting um, by anyone, whoever the artist, you know, and, and there's always going to be some sort of idiosyncratic take on something mm. and so um you know you've got women who are making self-portraits um like Elizabeth Vigée Le Brun who was um Marie Antoinette's favorite painter mm. you know she painted these amazing very glamorous self-portraits of herself smiling which was frowned upon at the time <laughs> um, you know as a calling card um other women painted self-portraits because they were isolated in their lives and that they were exploring their place in the world one of the great things about women's self-portraits is that they just show their extraordinary range of female expression and you can't pin it down, basically. <laughs> Do you find yourself having a favorite or is this like you couldn't possibly because they're all your children? <laughs> Ooh, you know, I, I love them all for various mm -hmm. reasons, but there were some. For example, the amazing, heartbreaking, brilliant artist Paula Modersen Becker. And she was German and she died in 1907 at the age of 31 or 32 after giving birth, tragically. But what I love about Paula is that, you know, life was tough. She was broke. She was battling all manner of things. But she blazed with a kind of joy and delight in the world mm. and, and in her painting. And, you know, she was so curious and she was so full of life. And she painted what is considered to be the first naked self-portrait by a woman. Wow. It's actually very misleading because when you look at it, you think that it's a self-portrait pregnant and it's called self-portrait on my sixth wedding anniversary. But what she'd actually done at this point was on her sixth wedding anniversary, she'd run away from her husband. Um, she paints herself naked and she looks pregnant, but she's not actually pregnant at this point in time. She's pregnant with the idea of possibility, I think. I mean, I'm interpreting mm. here. And um, she she's sturdy. She's strong. She looks out at us with a, a face that is full of personality and life. Um, she slightly cradles her belly. So you have a sense that she's cradling something. And it's her own sense of potential. And actually, she signed this picture. Um, her married name was Paula Modison Becker and her unmarried name was Paula Becker. And she signs her portrait, PB, Paula Becker. She gets rid of her husband. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that is defiant as fuck. It is in 1906. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> wow. So are you an artist yourself? Yeah, I trained as an artist and um, and then sort of the writing took over. But yeah, I'm I'm sort of painting again now, actually, which I'm really oh, that's enjoying. Wonderful. Have you done self-portraits? No, they're too tricky. <laughs> <laughs> so if someone listening to this is like, you know what, I want to take my image into my own hands. I want to try a self-portrait. Do you have any advice for her on how to kind of get started on that? You know what I would say is that there are no rules about this. And mm. often the greatest artists, you know, broke the rules. I mean, there are certain skills you can learn if you want to paint in a representational manner. But you could represent yourself by painting your house. You know, hmm. so, you know, there, there are lots of ways of saying this is who I am in the world. And, and they're not necessarily about painting your own face, I think. I love that. I love that a lot. Jennifer, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much, Greta. I really appreciate it. After the break, author Zoe Whittall tells us about her super badass new book, The Spectacular. 
Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. next guest does all the things. Her name is Zoe Whittall. She's a poet. She's written for TV shows like Schitt's Creek and the Baroness Von Sketch Show. And she has written four novels, including most recently The Spectacular. It came out in September and it traces the paths of three generations of Canadian women through punk rock shows and revolutions and maybe culty yoga retreats. That is all I will say about the plot. Zoe, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I want to just jump in and start with um, talking about the main character of the spectacular, Missy, because she really stuck with me. She's young. She's stubborn as hell. And she's like literally going around trying to find a doctor who will give her a hysterectomy because she wants to be able to have as much sex as she wants while she's on tour. I don't know. It's like such a big and fun and energetic vibe. And that's not to say that Missy is like a perfect person. She certainly has her flaws, but I just feel like she was such a great time. What was it like to hone that voice? It was really fun to be Missy at 22 because like you said, she's really boisterous and wants to have the time of her life. And, you know, I'm 45 years old. Mm-hmm. When I was 22, I was a little bit neurotic and scared of everything. So it was fun to inhabit someone who is just like going balls out and like having as much fun as she can while she's experiencing this crazy moment of fame for the first time. And what I wanted to do with Missy was sort of capture this time in, in feminist history of like the peak of the third wave where, which is like when I was a teenager, you know, in the whole like riot girl era of sex positivity and the way to be feminist was to like fuck as many guys as you wanted to do with unapologetically in a way that like, you know, 20, 30 years later, we're like, you think mm-hmm. about it differently, but I really wanted to sort of inhabit that moment in music history and in feminist history through this character who's like unrepentant and super obnoxious and fun and totally traumatized by um, her mother having left her suddenly when she was 13. Yeah, I think partly I found Missy so interesting because I felt like I could really relate to, you know, that whole idea of like putting off a vibe of giving no fucks. But that's actually because you care so much that you have to protect yourself as closely as possible. Totally. You know, I came out when I was 18 years old, but I almost feel like it's so possible that I might not have. Like I just sort of only came out because a girl kissed me once and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, like I never would have come up with it on my own. And so... I wondered what it would be like to go back and like create a character who never quite realizes it until later in life. And part of Missy's ambivalence and having a lover in every port on tour and like kind of going through guys is kind of that she's detached. You've talked about how this book partly came out of your own questions about whether you wanted to be a mother, right? Yes, absolutely. I decided to give the characters the emotional experience I'd been having since about the age of 30, which is like, it sounds like an exaggeration and and it might be a bit, but I feel like I woke up every day of my thirties and asked 
you know, should I have a baby? Should I do it now? Mm-hmm. And I never quite decided, you know, it's like I procrastinated for a very long time and then just didn't have one. And so I thought, you know, what if I took this sort of intellectual and emotional preoccupation and sort of siloed it into these three characters? So I was really looking at like, what if somebody really wants a kid? What if somebody really regrets having had a kid? What if someone really doesn't? And sort of took it to extremes. It's interesting to hear you talk about that because I always thought I would have kids, but I mean, I'm 36 now and like pretty single. Uh, Do you know, is there a word for just like waiting so long that it's actually too late to make a decision? That's kind of what I did in a way. And, And actually, while I was editing the book, I uh, I did get pregnant like right at the beginning of the pandemic that I found myself surprisingly pregnant because I was dating a cis guy for the first time and I was 44 or 43 at the time and was like, it's impossible statistically. And then it happened. And it was just one of those moments where I finally got the answer that I really did want a kid and it was really a beautiful experience. And then, and then I lost um, the baby. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. And, and um, it was a really interesting timing because here I was like really steeped every day in this book about motherhood and about the ambivalence to make that choice. Wow. I imagine that, I don't know, would either be deeply traumatic or kind of help you process or maybe a little of each? A little bit of each, I think. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So you dedicated the book to queer femmes everywhere. Um which is an identity that you talk about in a recent Harper's Bazaar essay, which was just fabulous, by the way. What for you makes this a story for queer femmes? Well, that's a really good question. I feel like it's a bit of a coming out late in life story for Missy. Mm -hmm. And she realizes it by coming to understand that she's a femme and she kind of has this moment in a lesbian bar in San Francisco where she's like, Oh, these are my people. She spent a lot of her adult life being like the girl hanging around the indie rock boys and feeling weird and feeling kind of weirdly, not like the other women and like not quite sure of her place and, and at odds with, with other straight women and stuff. And so then she, she sort of has this revelation about her gender and about, and also specifically I mean, even though femmes can date other femmes and like don't have, they're not defined by who they're attracted to. But I think for me personally, part of realizing I was a femme was also about realizing my <clears throat> affinity for butches and for masculinity in my mm-hmm. partners. And it's hard to find those kind of relationships in literature and film and TV. And so it was really important to me to, to sort of depict that. Also, it was the first book I've ever put out when I've been single. And mostly all of my other books have been dedicated to past lovers. Hmm. Um, And I just felt like I'm single and I want to recognize the other queer femmes in the world as their own people in this kind of way. Zoe, thank you so much for coming on. It was really fun to talk with you. It was awesome to chat with you. Thank you. That's it for this week. But real quick, before you go, as you may have seen in our newsletter, there is a new and super simple way for you to support Nerdette. Anytime you use your debit card, 
to pick up a brand new book or when you auto pay a monthly bill, you can throw a little extra change our way. It's easy to set up, super secure, and you can set the amounts and limits. Doing this would mean a great deal to us here at Team Nerdette, not to mention all your fellow Nerdette listeners. You can find out more by going to wbez.org slash nerd change. That is wbez.org slash nerd change. Thanks as always for listening and supporting the show. It is produced by me and Anna Bauman and Brendan Banaszak is our executive producer. We'll see you next week. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.